This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. The workforce has changed a lot in recent years, mostly driven by the pandemic and with an expected rise in the work for those involved in disaster management, there's a lot more change yet to come. Today, we're speaking with an expert who for many years has focused on researching workforce challenges and how the landscape is shifting for emergency management volunteers. She has sifted through all the research and today we'll be discussing how we can build the emergency management workforce of the future. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today? Josh, today on the show, we're joined by Dr. Blythe McLennan, Node Research Manager at Natural Hazards Research Australia. Her research has an applied policy focus, and prior to her current role, she was undertaking research projects for the Bushfire and Natural Hazards Cooperative Research Centre, focusing on emergency management volunteering and workforce challenges. Today on the show, we'll be asking Blythe what the emergency management workforce of the future looks like, what skills will be in demand, and how organisations can prepare for the impacts of climate change on our future workforce. I'll also be sneaking in a question about spontaneous volunteering. Let's look towards the future and chat with Dr. Blythe McLennan here on Me, Myself and Disaster. Blythe, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew and Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're here today to discuss changes to the workforce and into the future, how leaders might be able to create an environment to attract talent and prepare for what's to come, uh, specifically in emergency management. A lot of workers have seen changes over the past few years as a result of the pandemic, but what would you say uh, are the workforce trends that you've seen over the last few years and how have they impacted the emergency management workforce now? All right, that is such a big and nuanced question. Okay, so there's a few parts. You start hard here, I mean myself a disaster. That's right. The big issues. Go in and go in hard. All right, so there's a couple of things to unpack there and I'll answer it directly. But firstly is who we're talking about with the emergency management workforce. So there's so many different ways you can carve that workforce up. Um, Mm. Often when people talk about the emergency management workforce, they're talking about responders and response agencies, but the emergency management workforce is so much broader than that. It includes them, very importantly, but also recovery organisations, all the community organisations involved in preparedness, mitigation, supporting communities right throughout. So when we're talking about the emergency management workforce, we're almost talking pretty much about everybody. Like when a disaster happens, we all are involved in some way. So it's a really broad and diverse category to be speaking about. So in some respects, if you're talking about the trends influencing that workforce, it's all the stuff that influences people, which is a lot of things. Um, Another thing to say about trends impacting workforce is that a lot of them have been going on for a long time. So people like me with PhDs like to come along and look at them and highlight all these trends as if they're kind of new and novel things and the people have been around for a while in the emergency management space have seen these things come and go and they've seen attention to different trends ebb and flow. Um, in cycles almost and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, this, this issue is back on the agenda. So just it's important, I think, to know that in looking forward we also need to look back and not be reinventing the wheel and forgetting what we've we've learnt in the past and understanding that some of these things have been going on for a long time. But as far as, like, key trends, I mean, you need to talk about demographics, like where people are, urbanisation, 
some areas where there's declining ageing populations in some rural areas, but it's also important not to stereotype rural Australia because another of the big trends impacting rural Australia is how diversified it's becoming and diversified economy. So mm. you can't talk in a blanket sense about, you know, say um, response volunteers out in rural communities in a blanket sense because each community is quite different from the next and more so these days than in the past. You've, we've got to talk about trends impacting on volunteering. So the majority of particular response agency workforce are volunteers by numbers. Um, and we know that there's a lot of long in, kind of long long acting trends have been around for a while that are impacting on ways people volunteer. Um, so we've got less kind of really high commitment, long-term commitment to a particular organisation through formal volunteering. We've got more flexible volunteering, more episodic volunteering, um, less formal ways that people are getting involved in volunteering. Of course, for emergency management organisations that have like high training requirements, etc., that's quite a challenge for them. Um, but we also have trends impacting on volunteers through how volunteers are managed. There's changes happening. Mm. They're being treated more and more like paid staff and what's being expected of volunteers by government. So government policies towards, say, public service delivery are shifting in ways that are expecting volunteer-based organisations to do more in delivery of public services, especially in rural areas. So that's having a big impact as well. Um, there's trends impacting on young people and how they engage in both paid and voluntary work. We could just we could spend a whole podcast just on unpacking all the different <laughs> views on that. Um, yeah, trends and shifts around how how workforce are being managed. So different approaches to to management of workforce in organisations. Got to talk about technology, of course. If you talk about people and interaction between people and tech, how new technology is unfolding, and how we're using technology in work and volunteering and in the EM space, our risk profile, climate change, um, where and how we're living, where our infrastructure is, how exposed we are to different hazards. Um, this uh, thing of rising, arising, compounding events and repeat mm. disasters, like that's something that we are really going to have to be grappling with more into the future is responding and um, supporting communities through events where they're, you know, they're still in recovery from the last one and we've got another one coming through. And what does that mean for a very exhausted, overworked workforce as well? And then we've got uh, shifts in public public services and how government actually is delivering services to communities that's in flux as well. Um, and then there's political issues around um, how much we trust government um, and actors in government and what we ex which impacts what we expect from the emergency management sector, which impacts what we expect from the workforce in the emergency management sector. And every single one of them has all these different possible implications for the workforce separately, but then also in interaction mm. with each other. So I guess there's this whole host of things that are interacting. We just have to be mindful not to, I guess, paint too broadly with too broad a brush because... Um, that workforce is so diverse and the places that it is working are so diverse that we don't want to kind of skim over the top and and um, almost stereotype those, those issues and how they're playing out for the workforce in different places. 
So we know there's changes happening and I think a lot of those trends you've discussed are, are sort of being seen now. Are agencies and people across the sector preparing for those changes? And do you have any good examples? Because I think going to some of those emergency management conferences, there's a lot of discussion around flexibility, diversity and inclusion, but I don't think people are actively preparing, at least what I've seen, for the future and what's to come in, say, 5, 10, 20 years. Is there any active planning going on for that, do, do you think? There is, but there needs to be a lot more. I'd agree with you mm. definitely there. So, But there's a trick to that in that the sector is so busy responding and coping with all the events and things we've got happening now. How are they going to step back and start looking forward and doing all that strategic work and forecasting work of understanding what the future might be like and how we need to start preparing for that future when they are really being caned with what they need to do today to support communities today. That's something I think it's really important to consider in this with climate change and increased intensity frequency of events that we're expecting to see and we're already seeing. How is the sector going to get a moment, I guess, to start looking ahead and not dealing with what's just in front of it? But, yeah, I think there is a need to look further ahead. I think this is a an action-oriented, problem-solving sector, let's deal with the issue in front of us, I would like to see a lot more strategic attention to workforce and thinking 10, 20 years ahead, getting ready for what's ahead. I think the other thing with in preparing to support a future workforce is in that emergency management sector we tend to look at things in quite a siloed way so we look at the workforce in one organization and it's that organization's HR department focuses on its members I think we need to start looking a bit more collectively at the sector as a whole in a more integrated way than carving it up into one organization and another organization there's you that's important as well but there are so many kind of collective issues where we could harness a lot more I guess momentum towards preparing better for the future if we're, we're doing it in a more combined way, a lot of cross-learning, a lot of uh, sharing of innovation and a lot of kind of pooling resources and minds together. Uh, and I think that, that that issue of duality is something that is really big for the emergency management sector. I think we've seen it in a lot of circles and a lot of people that we work and talk with is this ability to obviously have one eye on the on the tactical game in front of them of actually delivering a service and doing what community and government expects of them and obviously, um, you know, working with communities and doing and discharging their duties, but also how do you keep that one eye on the strategic piece around preparing now? Because as many of us know, you don't take the actions now, you find yourself five or 10 years down the track having done having done nothing. But I think one of the other really important things as well, I know you have written a bit about this in your research, it's about actually understanding the narrative and the the kind of the undertones when you're actually doing that preparing work. And I want to run my own very kind of Mythbusters uh, session here today. Here we go. <laughs> There's been a lot of comment in the media and many of our listeners have probably heard it. This term, that volunteerism is dead or there is a decline in volunteerism. Yes. Myth? Myth. Myth, because I like from from my understanding, it's that we're transforming. It's not declining; yeah. it's transforming. What's your thoughts on that? Unpack, unpack that for our listeners. Yeah. Okay. Really, really important and really good question. So, yeah, I'm with you. Volunteering is changing. So, if we are looking at formal volunteering, the way you know, or coordinated formal volunteering affiliated with an organisation over a long period of time, there's less of that kind of volunteering for mm. sure. But there is, if you look 
at all the ways that people help and support others in their community beyond just their, you know, their inner circle, their families and friends. Um, the impetus and the motivation for people to do that isn't changing. Yeah. So it's the ways they're doing it. And that's one of the issues with youth volunteering. You look at people who are more used to that formal kind of high commitment um, as in commitment, as in um, staying with one organisation for a long period of time, style of volunteering, look to young people and go, they're not volunteering, they're not, we can't recruit them, but they are doing amazing things in different ways. So it's about broadening our understanding of what volunteering looks like. Mm. We do know people are busier too, like, and when it comes to, for example, young people, we look at the way they volunteer, so they're not committed to volunteering, but you look at their paid work experience as well, precarious, gig economy, a lot of mobility, a lot of competition. They don't stay with one employer for a long time. They can't. They have to mm. keep moving. Yep. It's like, um, you know, you're like a shark. You keep moving or you die in the workplace <laughs> <laughs> more and more. Yeah. And volunteering follows similar trends. So yeah. it, it's, um, yeah, so we need to look at it differently yeah. and broaden what we see. We also do need to understand though that it's it is there's pressures on people's time and commitment and accessibility of volunteering we've got more dual income households that also means that grandparents are busier helping out looking after kids etc we've Mm. got long commuting from people kind of in the outskirts of the city Um, we've got young people moving out of rural areas to get work and study in cities etc all of these things are impacted but I I don't think it's in decline. You'll see media reports saying things like school committees and sports clubs are struggling to find volunteers and they speak about declining social capital, which is yep. that kind of connections between social connections between us. But I think we need to look outside of those traditional structures of volunteering and think a bit more innovatively about how people are contributing to supporting communities for sure. Yeah, that's a very persistent, sticky myth. Yeah. I think. <laughs> there you go. Right here on me, myself, disaster, myth busted. Um, and, and, a, and a challenge to the to the listeners as well. If you hear that conversation, read some of Blythe's research. There's, there's lots of research in this space. Have a read and challenge people because I have noticed, Blythe, it's a, a narrative that keeps popping up in the media and even in some of the political space as well, some of our political leaders using that terminology and it's not the case. And if we are going to develop the plan of the future, we need to understand what some of those undertones and undercurrents are that's driving our workforce. And and with that in mind then, I know a project that you guys have been working on, the Workforce 2030 project. Can you take us through that? Like where was that born from and what's that kind of tackling or looking for moving forward? Yes. Yeah, so this came out of a an event. It's a, a research advisory forum that the Bush Financial Hazards Cooperative Research Centre held that looks at, was focused on the workforce and volunteering in emergency management sector and research on that and at that forum so this was a good couple of years ago um there was i guess an awareness that we really do need to capture there's a whole host of research out there that as as we've talked about all those wide trends and everything's Mm. you know the workforce is impacted by so many different things that we haven't kind of captured and weren't reflecting on in the emergency management sector as researchers in working around it and practitioners and managers and everybody. So that project was wanting to take a wider view and looking out and saying, you know, what what does research from a host of different areas, looking at a host of different trends kind of say um, 
about how these things are impacting on the workforce. So it's a really broad, it's like a one-stop shop. Mm. It's sort of it's going out broad to different kinds of research in different kinds of areas and bringing it all together as a first point to enter into understanding workforce changes in a more holistic sort of way. So that piece of work isn't digging into particular solutions, but it's more like giving a lay of the landscape both with things that are happening inside organisations but also outside of organisations and the EM sector and just, I guess, drawing attention to them and where there's research that is trying to understand those. Um, It's really quite... Um, they've got a big task ahead, you know, HR managers and people who are strategically thinking about future workforce. They've got quite a task in front mm. of them because there's a lot of things impacting on it. And, you know, reading through that report, I actually had some um, one HR director from an emergency response agency going, she's re- read through the report. She's like, oh, my gosh, there's so much to do. And then she, she's like, <laughs> but she wasn't daunted. She was like, right, let's get into it. Yep. Like we got to start. We've got to start getting into this stuff. And I think that's what that report is really trying to generate is that more holistic understanding of like, right, let's start getting into some mm. of this. One of the big consulting firms is doing a whole piece on feature, uh, future of work at the moment. And it's big business, it seems. A lot of companies are preparing for what that might mean. And thinking back, I know you mentioned earlier, we talked about COVID-19 and uh, one of the factors driving change was technology. I remember on the first lockdown, shares for Zoom skyrocketed. They just went, like crazy, everyone realized how valuable Zoom was going to be in the pandemic and Microsoft Teams and those sort of things were rolled out quickly within organizations. Do you think though that if we hadn't had COVID, would we still be moving in that direction or do you think COVID's really accelerated things or we'd be on this path of like same as usual? I mean, technology's been there for a long time. Zoom's existed for ages, but it feels like only now we're starting to use these things as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. I mean, I think what the pandemic has showed us is that all these things that we think are hard to change, when we've got a trigger to do it, we can do it. And that's, you know, I remember trying to do online webinars, you know, not that many years ago, and it was all, it was very hard and people couldn't connect to the tech and people weren't used to it and a kind of, the support from organisations for doing it was pretty low. Switch to now, completely different field. Mm. Everybody's so comfortable with it, so enabled. The tech problems you have with it are so much less because everyone's set up for it. And it, I, I love that because it opens up your engagement with people who don't like rural people and people who don't who aren't located in the capitals and people can access each other for conversations that they wouldn't have been able to access if they couldn't get funding to say fly to a capital city for a set of meetings you can get instead of having the people in the room who could get approval to travel that day you've got the people who really want to be involved in that conversation so i think that has really shown us but it's interesting isn't it that we don't tip and make changes until we have a trigger. There needs mm. to be a trigger for it in someone. I think the pandemic triggered change and innovation. Other things can trigger change and innovation, but it's hard to mobilise a big shift without some kind of trigger to, to tip you over the edge. <laughs> I think that's what <laughs> I, I kind of feel has happened in the pandemic. 
So we've got another big trigger coming, and that's called climate change. And you mentioned earlier mm. around that um, we're seeing more and more disasters, we're seeing more and more work, and that's across the spectrum from preparedness and mitigation uh, right through to disaster recovery. How are we going to manage something like that? Like what do we need to be doing now? If you're an HR manager or a, or a leader in an organisation, what should you be doing now to prepare for the challenges that, that the climate change is going to bring? Yeah, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a lot of um, a lot of leaders in emergency management probably kept awake at night thinking about that one, um, for good reason. Um, okay, so there's no easy answers, but I, I really think we need to do much more in mitigation and preparedness. If if you know you look at government spending on disasters, the Productivity Commission, it's four percent of spending is prior to disaster and 96% or, or thereabouts mm. after disasters, that's very reactive. So if we've got, you know, more frequent, more intense disasters happening under climate change, we're gonna have to do a lot more at the front end. It's not fair on the responders and on communities to have to bear the brunt of those moving forward. Just think about mental health and well-being impacts alone, let alone anything else. Um, we can't, we, we just can't. We've got to do a lot more in trying to reduce risk right across the board, land use planning, urban planning, all building, all sorts of risk reduction to prevent those people being asked to, to, to step up in that way more and more in future I think it's that's probably I think the first biggest answer to that question um and then the other one is that strategic view being more collective in looking at this as a whole as a system not carving it up into you know the fire agencies the state does one thing the fire agency another state does another thing the government department here does one thing the yeah yeah, I mean, we, we've got to do it together. What, whatever we're doing, we need to be talking about it strategically, collaborating and pulling in the same direction. So in some countries like the US, there seems to be a bit of a shift to centralising the response workforce. Um, and it's interesting because I think, I, I think, innovation, you just got to try some things, but there, there is some, you know, examples coming out that this doesn't always have the greatest benefit. What changes are you seeing to centralization and decentralization of workforce, this constant tension? I mean, we're not only seeing the volunteer, I mean, we see it in the, in the normal workplace around companies and private sector struggling with that. What's your thoughts in this space? Yeah, it seems to be cyclical, doesn't it? Yeah. So there's <laughs> even within each state, you'll see like this. Okay, we'll try centralization. Go through it. Okay, that hasn't met our expectations. Right. <laughs> Let's decentralize. See how that goes. And then it flips back around, and it's this constant kind of cycle, cycle, cycle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, it, it's that intersection between both real like of coordination and planning collaboration as a whole but community-based place-based connecting with what's there at the level of of um the communities that you're working with and and protecting at the same time and i think we tend to kind of go too much in one direction and then flip back too much in one direction and flip back because that systemic more systems view of, of connecting the different parts of the system is really hard. Yeah. Like, and if you are in a, an agency or your decision makers that are looking at, they, they like their nice, clean policy 
this is going to address this issue. Let's do this strategy and it's nice and clean and it looks good. But it, it, I think the reality is it's messy, right? It's a yeah. self-organizing system. There isn't a nice, <laughs> clean, strategic approach um, or, or policy shift that's going to, like, sort this out. It's, yeah. it's many different things and I think we kind of need to just take that on board and, and uh, stop looking for these nice, simple magic bullets answers yeah. and solutions. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I, I have giggled to myself in many rooms and in many conversations because this constant tension between obviously end of the day, disasters, um, you know, disrupt community to the core, but then we bring obviously a government based response uh, in to deal with that. And you've got this real nicely structured hierarchical system trying to interact and work with this really flat kind of community organic structure. And I, I have to admit, when I walk into some rooms, and I see some people trying to tame that beast and, you know, almost put a lead or a halter on it. I just have to giggle to myself and go, guys, you've got to go with the flow. But in terms of um, it, just going back a step, like in terms of the um, the workforce, you talked about this notion of, Workforce planning, I think sometimes we get so stuck into thinking and I think you made a really good comment around when Andrew asked, you know, what are some of the future? It's like, well, we need to look at disaster risk reduction strategies. And I, I think many people go, what's that got to do with HR? But it is this, you know, it is this holistic notion is that at the end of the day, disasters are the nexus of all things. What I want to ask you, have you seen any good examples or some some advice for our people around how do you connect the dots together? Because I think that's one big thing in our sector that we need to do better is how do we communicate and collaborate with one another across all sectors, not just the EM sector, it's not just community, but it's also private sector, insurance, community groups, NGOs, it's all of us operating this space, shooting for the same outcome. If we need a collective response, I guess, to solve the workforce planning issue, have you got any thoughts, Blythe, around that communication, connection and collaboration piece? Oh, good question. I think it's generally getting better overall. I think there's a much bigger focus on collaboration, but that's quite a culture shift for the emergency mm. management sector, which is quite risk averse and is does come from that command and control legacy. Um, collaborating means letting go, yeah. doesn't it? It means listening to others. It means allowing others to influence the output who may then not be standing up on the podium when the post-event inquiries happen and the lawyers are telling you about what you did. <laughs> yeah. Like we, it's, I, I, I can see why it's a risk-averse sector, like they're risk-averse on our behalf to mm. protect and look after us. But there is a culture shift to enable that and I think there's some really good elements of that already happening but it's about linking them up and supporting them where they where they are. I think people who are trying to do that sort of work do hit institutional barriers and cultural barriers and things. So it's about supporting that good work where it is. And I think across different scales, right, from the levels of like brigades and units doing amazing things in their communities in that respect um, of working with other community groups and, you know, doing great things in engagement um, and, and working with others in the community right up to high-level kind of um, collaborative networks that are looking at some of these big pictures, issues at the kind of higher national and, and state jurisdictional levels. There's there's good work there but it's hard mm. and it takes time and it needs resourcing and it needs space and it needs commitment and it needs leadership support behind it. Um, yeah, so I guess 
it's it's there. It's about putting all that behind it to to support it going forward. Yeah. But I, I, I see more of it for sure. I think that culture change is shifted, but we don't want the culture changes to happen in the HQ, you know, headquarters with the people with the degrees from unis. I've, I've talked to volunteers and they're like, oh, you know, headquarters is full of PhD trained city folks that have got their nice policies, but that, that's, you know, that's not connected to what the real world is for us. Yeah. It needs to be connected. So um, I think that just needs to involve all the people, different levels and conversation across those levels from the coalface and the community level up to the strategic level. There's connections internally in organisations within their people but then also out to others. Um, So I think it's just continued to support it in all the ways that we Mm. can. And that makes me think, so we're in Japan just recently and then um, in Thailand after that and the same challenges are facing us all. It's the... Climate change is going to impact us everywhere and we're seeing more and more work. And what you mentioned then just reminded me of the diversity of our workforce. We've got volunteers in remote parts of Australia. We've got volunteers in parts of Asia. Everyone is going to feel it, but the ones who are sort of at the forefront and the leaders making this may not have a grasp of what actually needs to happen. How, how I guess, how aware do you think people are of these challenges moving forward? I mean, everyone's talking about climate change that's going to hit us, but do you think there's a level of awareness in terms of what needs to happen and what change needs to actually take place to ready ourselves for the, the challenges ahead? I mean, volunteers make up a huge percentage of our workforce and um, we need to look after and make sure that they're prepared for this, but they can only take a certain amount of time off work uh, when a major disaster happens. So do you think there's a level of awareness and are we prepared for what's to come? I think there's an awareness but I think we need to move past talking about the problems to getting into that really difficult job of starting to try mm. out solutions. So I think awareness is definitely there. Um, but, you know, government agencies, bureaucracy, they move slowly. It's like turning a great big ship at sea. Um, that And, you know, in thinking about the future kind of innovation and trying out new solutions, they won't all work. Like... You know, yeah. being being open to, to failure every now and then is okay. We've got to start trying things out. There's a there, like I said, there isn't a magic bullet solution. Try out a bunch of different. Some things will work in some places better than others. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a courageousness, courage in to kind of take a leap and try stuff out and be okay with the fact that it's failed. We're not very good at it, accepting. You know, okay, we tried it didn't work we learned from it let's take that learning and go do something else and not you know broadly speaking painting in buckets we're not real good at doing that so um, there'll be more of that moving forward I think and I think one of the things we're looking at now in terms of the sector, we have major disasters and there's kind of an expectation that the community will become involved because we cannot have a fire truck on everyone's doorstep. You can't have a first responder out there helping everyone with every sort of crisis there is. But often the, the true first responder is a member of the community who comes across a car crash or helps put a fire with their garden hose or whatever they do. Do you think that sector is going to go bigger in terms of spontaneous volunteering and communities getting involved in disasters? And what's the research saying about that in the future as to how do we get communities mobilised uh, in response to these major impacts of, of natural hazards? Yeah, so we could talk about this on its own for hours and hours. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> Andrew's favourite topic. <laughs> Mine also. Okay. All right. So communities have always, always been involved. 
they were always the first yeah. ones. I we actually had a project that was about the so-called non-traditional emergency volunteering, a community group I was working with. They're like, you're talking about community volunteering here. That's the most traditional kind of volunteering mm. and and mobilization around disasters and and events is is you know that informal, organic, like you say, um, bystanders and friends and family community coming together. That's always been there. What we've seen, uh, the shift, the big shift we're seeing happening is government is paying attention to it. <laughs> like it's on the radar. It was under the radar. It wasn't part of the formal coordinated response. Now with social media, it's more visible. It's more self-organised. It's got more, we've got more ability to, to organise ourselves and not have to do it through a formal, you know, sanctioned emergency management organisation. So it, it's like there's more of it. Or, or at least it's more visible and more capable of organising itself with the use of those sorts of tools now. But it's always been there. Um, and as far I hate the term spontaneous volunteering. We've, we've got it, like we're stuck with it. But it's got all this baggage and labels and kind of imagery behind it that isn't very accurate to my mind. I prefer to talk about emergent volunteering because around disasters you have emergent organisation, you have emergent coordination, you have emergent networks emergent leadership emergent volunteers like because it's it's not business as usual so all this new stuff happens volunteering is one part of that um Mm. i think it's always been there the ship has sailed where it's there it's part of the emergency management workforce we tend to get stuck a little bit in groundhog day should we enable this should we should we ship a sale done and dusted moving on let's how are we going to do it and how are we going to do it well yeah. past that we've got to move way past that there are actually quite a few good developments and things happening in europe there's a lot of work looking at how you link that kind of more formal um uh, coordinated response with the more organic community response and platforms and ways of doing that we've got some great examples in Australia, um, volunteering Queensland's done some great work with councils and looking at different kinds of volunteering. You know, the stuff New South Wales SES has looked at mobilising community, um, uh, connecting with spontaneous volunteers and, and community-based um, support for SES. There's there's a host of things. It's about tapping into that and mobilising it and elevating it. I think um, I I actually think we've got quite a quite a few good examples and places especially at, at community level where it works really mm. really well um resilient lismore is doing amazing stuff so so many it's about putting all the infrastructure around of enabling it enabling the linkages having people in those formal organizations that are given authority and legitimacy to connect with those groups and start doing that linking up um yeah, and I think in looking to the future, that's going to be one of the main sort of, I think, drivers of what happens in the future is how open is the formal emergency management sector going to be to connecting in with this? I think there's a big question mark there. Um, yeah. If we're looking at how the workforce is going to be structured, how EM is the emergency management is going to work in the future, there's two parts to bringing in kind of that more organic community mobilization um one is are people going to be in the right place with the time and the capacity to do and the willingness to do it and is the sector going to be open to connecting with it and enabling it um 
I think that emergency management sector would like to control it. We have that idea of harnessing spontaneous volunteers, which is another term that I, we, is used a lot, but it gives me this visual image of some emergency planner up there with his uniform on and reins, kind of steering community people, go this way, do that, go this way, do that. You don't harness, you connect with, you partner, yeah. you enable, you support, you give information. Um, yeah, I think some of... They'd like to bring it into the fold and make it part of their coordinated response, but I think they're going to have to let go of that. It's going to be a bit more of a distributed, networked, not one central coordination, you know, not not such a hierarchical. And I think we have examples of where that is starting to work really well. They tend mm. to be more local level. Yeah, so I guess it's learning from that and, and, um, and promoting it and just in enabling it in a safe you know i mean the emergencies are not safe in and of themselves but you know with looking after everybody the, the the main principle is that whatever we're doing however we are coordinated together it's it's for the community and the people being impacted by a disaster and their well-being and their needs are front and center and are the most important thing that we're focusing on and once we focus on then and then step back okay how do we support those people the best way possible almost doesn't matter how we do it who cares if if the impact is being felt i think there's a lot of people sitting at home probably going andrew joshua blythe you are bringing up more questions than you are answering (laughs) right here right now and this is i think i'm hoping people are getting the appreciation of that of how complex and deep this space actually runs there is a lot in this space um and we i think we're definitely going to have to schedule another time in to have another podcast on this and delve more into this into this topic because it is fascinating and it definitely is as you said Blythe it is one of the key kind of fundamental questions that the sector in itself is going to have to answer um, over the coming years and start to put those strategies in place so that you know when they are at full maturity you know it will take three four five years for some of these strategies to come to come to fruition but in terms of kind of just wrapping up our conversation today We've talked a lot about you know future trends, uh, what we think is going to happen, what you know, what are those challenges? But what do you think are some of the key skills and attributes that the that the emergency manager leaders of tomorrow are going to need to enable this to happen? Um, you know, what do they need in their day to day lives in terms of capability so that they can excel in making this change and and I guess mentoring this culture change through? Yeah, good question. Uh, leadership's really important, um, and there are different styles of leaders and different styles of leadership. So one person can, one particular leader can learn and understand different styles of leadership. Um, so that's we've touched a little bit on that in the workforce twenty thirty report so we're talking about um leaders with emotional intelligence transformational Mm. leaders that can inspire bringing people along with change um and leaders that are cross cross borders so those boundary workers so leadership that has like one foot in each camp so um you have those sort of brokery brokering sort of roles where you've got salience in community space and salience in EM space. And I think those people um, uh, and, and leaders in those people with what kind of one foot of feet in different places are going to be really, really important for that kind of working together and linking up. Um, so collaboration skills, 
are going to be big. So that's all that facilitation, mm. conflict resolution, all engaging, being able to listen to others, all of that stuff is going to be really, really important. Um, conceptual and strategic skills, systems thinking, looking ahead, foresight, scenario planning, understanding uncertainty and making decisions um, in con- in the context of not having all the answers yet um, is going to be really important. Um, and then that real, you know, fostering innovation, novel solutions, trying things out, um, being adaptive, being responsive, learning and improving constantly. I think they are going to be really important skills. And we've got leaders in the sector that that can do that. Um, like, So, yes, this raises a lot of questions, but we actually have a lot of – there is a lot of action in this area. We have a lot of answers. It's just mm. that they're not – nicely neatly packaged up into a simple single solution there's there's many of them and they're varied and it's really a um kind of a coordinated but um diverse response it's not one nice simple answer that you could give on a podcast or in a policy document that this is the answer this is what we're (laughs) going to do so it sounds really messy it sounds really complex and it is but we also do have a lot already happening and there is a lot of good, I've asked volunteers and others to tell me about good examples of things that are kind of mobilising, preparing the volunteer workforce, and they can give lots of examples. So there's stuff there. Mm. It's about learning from it, learning between ourselves. So if a good thing is happening in one place, how do we share it to others so that others can learn from it and how they might apply something similar or, or use that elsewhere? So I think it's about that really connecting up and communicating up and down and across as well. I'm wondering if we need to kind of look at who we recruit into the workforce in the first place. And Josh and I talk about this all the time around when we went through university and school, the focus was on STEM. And so we studied like engineering and maths and those sort of things. Well, I think one of the biggest things that we've seen is the behavioral change piece. I think a lot of work that we need to do uh, in the emergency management space, I think to, to a degree, we have probably reached the level of maturity that we need in that response phase where we probably haven't reached the level of maturity is around that planning and preparedness space where we work with community work hand in hand. And as you said, Blythe, it's not about harnessing, but it's about enabling, letting go and allowing other people to produce the outcomes. But to do that, it takes a very special person. It takes some of that behavioral change. Um, You said it, emotional intelligence, being able to read the room, being able to sit down around a coffee table with community and negotiate. I think like the conversation Andrew and I have had is that that is probably one of the single biggest gaps in the EM space. We have a lot of people that are outcome-driven, system thinkers, obviously come from that background what we really need to marry that with to create the the almost the superhero, the Clark Kent EM person uh, is about let's where's the emotional intelligence? How do we bring that into it? Yeah. Mm. I, one thing I've seen and would like to see more of is the areas in organi- emergency management organisations that focus on um, community engagement being more linked into the, the areas of the organisations that are looking at, say, workforce issues Mm. and supporting and coordinating volunteering um, because I think they're so interlinked and I think we we have a lot of those sorts of skills but they're pocketed away in a little area called community engagement or community safety often and perhaps not as broadly understood that they're skills for other parts of the organisation as well. So I think maybe there's a bit of cross-learning within different areas of organisations and work and kind of connecting those up because I think there's some amazing people with really sound skills in those areas at community levels, um, yeah, right right up and through organisations. But 
yeah, I, and it's a big ask in a way, like the kinds of skills you need to be really good at response and crisis decision-making and coordination mm. and incident control, they're, they're like really high-end specialist skills. Is it fair to ask an organisation that focuses <laughs> on that to then also be able to do all this other really difficult stuff? There's a, a question there, like that's the diversity of the workforce, isn't it, it that we need diverse yeah. skill sets but kind of in conversation with each other as well. Um, yeah, it, in, in a way we're expecting a lot of the, the emergency management sector as a whole and of the workforce with what we're expecting moving forward of more in preparation, more in mitigation, more in engagement, more in comms and warnings, more in this, more tech, data, all of it. It's big expectations. So, yeah, we need to be realistic Mm. um, and understand that we have some really good skills in there already. It's about fostering them. It's about supporting them. It's about elevating the ones that maybe could use a bit more support but don't forget the really sound skills that we already have in there as well. It's not, you know, don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. You know, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like, and, and again, you know, we can come in and put new policies and what have you that focus on one thing in particular, but don't forget all the other stuff. It's, it's really important foundation. I was going to ask you for my last question, but I think you just answered it then around. If we were to jump into a time machine now and go 10, 20 years into the future, what the disaster landscape would look like. If we rock up into a town that would be impacted by a tornado or a flood, I, I think from our discussion today we'd probably see the community helping far more. We'd probably see a greater use of technology that people are sort of utilising to um, stay safe and, and I guess harness that. And I think our workforce would look very different. As I mentioned, the community, but it would also be the way that our first responders and our recovery teams and those in the mitigation, hopefully a lot more of the mitigation people and potentially people with different skills than what we have now. Um, is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't covered today, Blythe, that you wanted to add in about that? Yeah, I think just I would like to see all of that linked up better. So mm. we have lots of those different elements already. It's about them being linked and there's some good examples of kind of local level recovery coordination, etc. I think we, we do need to put some more attention into that coordination, local level coordination roles that, that help link up all of those pieces together. Um, I think that's, mm. that's what I would like to see more. But again, recognising each community is different. So you're looking at what does that community need? We don't just barrage mm. it with all the things we think it's going to need, like the communities. Yep that are feeling the effects, they should be the ones saying, we need this, we need that. Um, it's So it, it needs to be based on where the community is at, what strengths it has. Some communities might go, no, we got it, thanks, we're good. Like we're sorting ourselves out, we're coordinated between ourselves, just hang, hang back and we got this one. So maybe just let them go. But in other times it'll be, no, we, this is too much, we need we need support and looking at what those communities mean. So I think it really needs to be focused on on each case and the communities, what they need themselves. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to take note out of that discussion and I think a lot for people who've been listening today thinking about their organisation and what they can do and I guess leadership's a responsibility of everyone but um, I think in 10, 20 years those who are probably junior in the agency will be the ones leading the agency and we'll have to consider these things. So a lot for everyone in this episode. Blythe, thanks for sharing your experience with us today. We'll put a bit more information on our website at memyselfdisaster.com along with a video we'll record around some of the challenges in the workforce at the moment. Dr. Blythe McLennan, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
that's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. 